make sure that what we're bringing is a man of God who brings the word of God. And I could not be more enthusiastic about presenting today Dr. Lusteria. Well, thank you, Rich. I appreciate your being there and, and this morning. And uh, always a few announcements. I for, always forget, uh, Pastor asked me to bring a few products. There's some books back behind there, some DVDs and all that sort of thing. So, so much of the propaganda, I'll let you put that back on. I'm sorry, I should have done that for you. That's all right. I and, uh, <laughs> and then uh, the Langhoffers, I'm very grateful for the hospitality yesterday and we've had friendship for the years. And so, I always uh, journey with them in so many parts. And the Wyants are here, uh, Charlie, Renee, and Bailey, and Tucker. I told you about the church. And then Cami and Abigail. So make yourself acquainted with them. And glad to be with you this morning. You know, some days are better than others and easier. You know, yesterday I picked out a clean shirt for my program and I put on that. Man, this is snug. I always wear a dark shirt when I'm wearing a horse. And I looked in the mirror and had my wife's name monogrammed on the top. No wonder it's a little snug here, you know. So I thought I had a better day today, and I put up a set of jeans to get them on. I looked at them, like, these are my wife's jeans. I said, this is not going well. So I'm thinking, okay, I'm dressed, I'm here, we're good, okay? So, you know, uh, life is funny, we all go through that. Today I want to teach you one word. Now I'll put a lot of color and details in behind, but I want the one word that's already in your program about humility to stand out for you. But uh, before I need to do that, I, I need to teach you that there's only really one goal that God has for all of us in our journey through life, and that's to learn how to love. We think, well, that's easy. You see, our world is having the church on the defensive today because it's telling us what love is. Love is free sex. Love is no judgment. Love is nothing harsh. And so the church is back up because we don't really understand what love is. And love is the result of seven processes that it takes us a lifetime to learn how to love a lot like Christ's love. But in order to learn how to love, you first have to learn how to hate. So this morning, I'm probably not going to do well if I teach you how to hate. But God says there are six things that I hate. Yes, seven that are an abomination. You see, because love and hate are never far apart, are they? You ever ask your parents for something and say, Oh, Daddy, I love you. Can I have this? And he says, No, it's not. You go to your bedroom. I hate my father. It's amazing how flippant we are with love and hate just like that. Because the very people you dearly love are the very people you feel hatred towards sometimes. Is that not true? Don't say that out loud. But of course it is. And see, I love horses, but the truth of it is I hate horses. <laughs> Because <laughs> you know, as soon as you love on them, they step on your feet. And as soon as you think they're great, they buck you. I mean, goodness, why can't my words get through? So when God says there are six things, seven that I hate, what are they? He says, I hate an arrogant look. I hate our haughty eyes, is what he says. I hate um, a lying tongue. I hate hands that shed innocent blood. I hate a heart that devises wicked plans. I hate feet that run rapidly to evil. I hate uh, those who, who uh, bear false witness. I hate those who spread strife. See, every one of those is in a horse. <laughs> when a horse is upset or afraid, he raises his head. Why does a horse do that? That's that arrogant. Why does a horse raise his head? 
Because in his frame of reference, when he raised his head, his field of vision is farther. He can see his enemies. He can see his predators. So he raised his head when he's afraid or upset. Now here's the irony. Let's just say we have, have uh, two... Uh, the P.T. Barnum Circus is no longer, but the P.T. Barnum Circus had the big tent. That was the famous thing. And in a big tent, like the San Francisco Bridge, there was the tent pegs, the curtain went up over the first pillar and swooped down to the second pillar and then back down to the bottom. And the irony of it, if you've ever been malicious and you've had fellow campers with you and you wanted to play a little dirty trick with them, all you had to do is go around their little tents and pull the tent pegs. While they were sleeping in it. And then you just rumbling around the rest of the wide. Because what happens when you pull the tent pegs? The tent collapses. You see, the tent isn't supported by the pillars primarily, it's supported by the tension on the tent pegs. What's that got to do with a high look? Why does Jesus say, uh, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly, and you shall find rest for your souls? For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, there's a little cord that runs down the horse's, from the pole of the top of the horse's head, down its back, called a ligament and nuchi, <coughs> comes across his shoulder blades, and across his back, and down his tailbone, called a suspension bridge. Now, when do you think that the, the cord on the back is tight, when his head is up or when the head is down? Down. Absolutely right. You see, a horse only puts his head down on two occasions. He's eating grass, or he's in a non-threatened position where he doesn't have to feel in charge. But when the horse raises his head, the cord gets slack, and the burden on his back gets heavy, because he's carrying it with his own strength. When he gives headship to another, his burden becomes light because it suspends his burden upward. I hate haughty eyes. People are always have to be in charge. People are always raising their head. People are always in a position of defensiveness. I hate blind tongue. We call it bit evasion. If you ever watch a young horse who's not accustomed to a bit, whose mouth has not been submitted to God, he'll open his mouth and he'll go, ah, grab the bit. And no matter how many times you say, whoa, he's still going to run off with you. <laughs> whoa means nothing if he doesn't respond with a bit. Bit evasion. His mouth gapes. I hate hands that shed innocent blood. Feet, front feet or rear feet that strike out. I especially hate it when they shed my innocent blood. Because <laughs> I know my blood is innocent. <laughs> They'll strike at you and, and anybody that's working around an animal... Cat, dog, they'll reach out when they're afraid and they'll attack you with those legs, won't they? Sure they will. I hate a heart that devises wicked plans. There are a lot of horses that look so nice until you get near them, as you say, or try to mount them, and suddenly all those evil plans come to fruition. I hate feet that run rapidly evil. If you've ever been on a barn, on a horse, and you're headed back to the barn, you just hope as the horse picks up speed, that they didn't leave the top door closed and the bottom one open. You're going to have the most serious headache of your life. Feet run rapidly. The horses always run back to the herd, always run back to a place of familiarity, always run back to a place where they feel in control. 
I hate those who bear false witness. There's a lot of horses, friends, that have a saddle and bridle and ridden by a lot of people who will kill you. Their accents looking for a place to happen. But you don't know it until you try to harness their life. You don't really know it until you try to coordinate their life in harmony with yours. And I hate those who stir up strife among the brethren. If you've ever been on a public trail ride, and I don't do this anymore, and you have one reckless, ill-mannered horse, he can destroy the entire trail ride. He runs off, he kicks at other horses, he bucks the rider off. One horse can destroy an entire safety of 50 head of horses securely mounted. You know what all those are caused by? Pride. The horse always needing to have the final say. The horse always wanting to be in control. God says, I am opposed to the proud. I am opposed to the proud. You see, when we define who we are, sometimes the best way, whether you go to a mission statement or anything else, is to decide who you aren't. By the way, I congratulate you on your church and your big move coming up. That's great. But you know, every time you get a newcomer coming into the church, they say, we ought to do this, we ought to do that, we ought to do that like the other churches. And finally you have to decide who we are, but sometimes you have to decide who we aren't. Amen. When I ran camp ministry all the time, people always said, man, you've got to have some therapeutic riding here. you got to do this program, you've got to program. I said, you know what, there's other people doing that, that's not who we are. This is not what we are. And sometimes you need to say in your family, when it comes to my family name, this is who we are not. We are not a people who are headstrong. We are not a people who live in lies. We are not a people who tolerate lies. We are not a people who are given to anger. We are not a people given to rebellion. We are not people who quit. And we are not going to be a people who make excuses for ourselves. And this is who we are not, which implies who we are. But you see, it's just as important for you to close the door, friends, as it is for you to open a door. You see, when we start training a horse, the first thing we do is we get him moving and we close the back door. Because the back door of all Christians is truth. And if you are not a person who has an absolute conviction you must live by the truth, you'll always run backward and live by lie. And isn't that a former father, a lie, the devil? Boy, to live by the truth means that we're accountable to those who call us to the truth, who require the truth of us. So what are we about? Well, actually, the funny thing is, as Scripture refers to us through, this, through the Old Testament and New Testament, you realize that God called the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, and he called them into a new land, a promised land, a land of milk and honey. And that land wasn't a picture of heaven, because we had enemies living in everything else. It was a picture of the fact that this land was given to them, but it was a picture of their soul. Because in our, you know, when we come to Christ, first of all, we know our bodies are staying here. They're not going with us. Thank goodness. We don't have to take our arthritis to church, and we don't have to take it to heaven. It's going to stay here. We get new bodies. So this body doesn't, doesn't last. But our spirits are eternally secure with God. We are sealed by the blood of Christ. So our spirits are saved and set apart. But there's this middle part called our soul, our mind, will, and emotion. And that's where the battle takes place, isn't it? Just because we're saved doesn't mean all of our thoughts are clean. Doesn't mean all of our desires are clean. Doesn't mean all of our, our will our choices are clear. And, and, and so there's this battle. Whatever you feed wins. And so God left seven nations in that land. 
that they were to win and they were to conquer and subdue. And he said, if whatever you do not subdue will rule over you. Now, there are actually seven battles that they go through. They go through the battle of Ai. They go through the battle of, sorry, Jericho, Ai, Gibeon. And then there are actually seven sequences that they go through. And they all boil down to one major thing. God wants to rule, and he wants you to possess the land he wants to occupy and then possess the full will of your life. And that means you're going to have to confront your mind, your will, and your emotions, which are going to bring your body in subjection to rule over this temple. And he wants you to absolutely rule over it. We say, that's great. Because I want all that blessing of life abundant, as he promised, and milk and honey. And he promised all it to you. It's just kind of like Mary's though. If all of us knew what it really was about, none of us would be married. <laughs> it's like raising children. All of, I see these baby pictures on Facebook, and I said, oh, dear Lord, help those folks. Because <laughs> uh, if they know what trouble we're getting into, you know, and God is so good to us. You know why we don't like it? It's not because it's bad, because it forces us to grow up. It forces us to face issues and realities. And, you know, when you are a single person, you can look pretty good. Then you get married and many things get exposed. And children tell all. Right in public, right in church. Isn't that terrible? There's no more secrecy. There's no more place to go. Now here's what I want you to get. How does God do this? Well, we have to realize that the goal of all instruction, but the goal, the singular goal of our instruction is love. From. See, it doesn't quit there, does it? Because the world would buy that. The singular goal of instruction, all five, was the love. But who defines love? And that's the big debate of our culture today. Who defines love? And the world is telling us, well, that the gospel of Satan is telling us that love is all these wonderful things. And one day, those who kill Christians who are irritating and vindictive and judgmental and and uh, non-cooperative. When they kill the Christians, they will be doing the world a good service in the name of God. That's how reverse things are going to be. And we're right in the middle of this transition. Okay. So what is love? The Bible tells us love is the result of seven things. There are seven nations. And when you learn to face these issues and subdue them, the result will be love. Peter says, now supplying all diligence, add to your faith, virtue, and virtue, knowledge, and the knowledge, self-control, and the self-control, perseverance, the perseverance, godliness, and the godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. Love is actually the result. There are actually seven beatitudes, and people tend to think they're eight. Now, eight is the result of why. Blessed are you when men shall persecute you and say all men are evil against you. Rejoice, be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. You see, last night I witnessed a really wonderful thing. Charlie has a wonderful horse named Silas. And Silas has been a great horse, but he's a high-energy horse. And he's a, he's a horse that if he's mishandled, will be a runaway horse. He's very dynamic. And for the last night, I watched him put his son on Silas. Now, uh, uh, Tucker's nine, and he's not real tall, so he's not extremely powerful. If this horse would run off, he would be a handful for Tucker. And even Tucker's a good little rider. But, but for the first time in the history of Silas's career, and my witness, 
I watched this horse, who has all the dynamic of runaway and rebellion and resistance, just quietly submit to the leadership of Tyler. And I thought, this horse has become a servant. This horse is learning to love. He has the power to disobey. He has the power to run off. But it took a result of a lot of years of investment. In fact, Charlie thought about swapping him off many a day, I'm sure. And he was very frustrated because during that process, and you have to see there's a process to love. So what is that love? Well, first of all, we have to understand that opposite of fear, and that's why God brought Jericho in, didn't it? Jericho was a heavy fortress city, very intimidating. Does not Peter tell us? And even if you should suffer for doing right, do not fear their intimidation and do not let your heart be troubled. Don't you ever feel in your spirit when you go to witness to somebody, suddenly your mouth gets dry and your stomach gets knots and your hands sweat and you have not a thing to say? Why, when you go against the world darkness, you will always face intimidation. His number one prank is fear and intimidation. You see, when we are afraid, what do we do? The purpose of fear is what? To focus on ourselves, to protect ourselves. When a horse is afraid, he raises his head, and he carries a heavy burden, and all things become worrisome and, and difficult, and he becomes self-centered. The whole goal of Satan is to get our eyes on ourselves to try to deliver ourselves. But you will never face that unless you admit that you are afraid. I love these trucks run by 16-year-olds that say on the back, no fear, you're stupid and you're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm more afraid of horses than anybody in this room. Yesterday, unknown to me, when I turned my back for a moment on this young two-year-old, everybody else gasped and said, look out, because the horse bolted and could have struck me down, but he didn't. All it takes is a second with a horse with their teeth, and they're, they're, they're powerful animals. And because we work with them, it's just like a race car. A professional race car driver has more fear and respect for those cars probably than any driver on the road. But one millisecond of inattentiveness is death. And when you take on the liabilities of wild horses or difficult horses or self-centered horses, and you have this huge goal for them, you're going you're gonna to flush to the surface all the worst things. So here's what we do. We have to own our fear. Remember, you can never give to God or give to somebody else what you will not own. I'm not afraid. Then you own it. Well, I'm not angry. You see, we have to own who we are in the flesh. You will never experience the fruit of an exchange life with Christ until you're willing to trade Him something. You can't buy wisdom unless you're willing to sell foolishness. You can't buy something unless you're willing to make all of life in the biblical pattern is a series of exchanges. When you find a pearl of great price, sell whatever you have and go buy it. But if you don't find a pearl of great price, hang on to your garbage. But if you find something more value, you're going to have to let go. My father, my stepfather, was a missionary to Africa. And I always remember this as a kid. He brought these artifacts back. I'm not Africa, India, excuse me. And uh, one of them was a coconut. And on the bottom of the coconut, they put a little hole, put a chain in the bottom, and they stake the, the chain in the ground. 
And then they put a little bit of sweet meat or whatever that monkey liked. They cut the top just large enough that the hand of the monkey could fit in. But once he grabbed the sweet treats, his hand wouldn't let go because his fist was bigger than his hand. Stupid monkey. <laughs> Until somebody came on and either bashed his brains out or caught him or whatever. Because he wouldn't let go. Stupid monkey. All he had to do was let go. And he would have been free. But you know, hanging on to fears is kind of fun sometimes. Because you know why? It appeals to fun. So you have to humble yourself. And you have to put on faith. That's what you know he does. He puts on faith. It looks to yourself in the mirror instead of seeing the ugly, angry, discouraged, hopeless person. says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am the delight. I am the apple of God's eye. I've been given all gifts that I need. What you mentioned this morning, being in Christ. You know, sometimes putting that on to your friends is like putting on a wet bathing suit. <laughs> it goes on hard because everything in our life says everything else, doesn't it? But you struggle if you want to go swimming and your suit's still wet. You get it on if you're a kid and you want to go swimming. Sure you Why? Why? Because you believe in the joy and the fruit of the swimming over the difficulty of putting it on. Any man who shaves his face every morning can't surely like it. He scrapes off the first layer of his face. Like, why do I do this? He nicks himself because he believes in the feeling of being fresh or taking a shower. Sometimes you don't want to take the shower because you're just like, you're just, whatever. You always believe that the result of doing something difficult, exercise, is worth the effort. And that's what faith is about. And that's what humility is about. Putting on the truth when I'd rather live in the lie. The second attribute is, is add your faith virtue. The second battle in the Old Testament was Ai. And Achan had stolen a lot of things and hidden in the band, and they went up and they were defeated and so forth. And so God brought to light the things that were true. That were true. When you tell a lie, what's the next thing you want to do? You get caught. You got it. Lie again. He's really weird, isn't he? He's the only person in here that wants to lie again. Not. Because we believe the solution to light when it comes into darkness is more darkness. Scripture says, and this is the judgment that has come into the world, the light that's come into the world, and men hated the light because their deeds were even, they did not want to come to the light. There is not a, there is not an addiction in the world that cannot be immediately broken with the power of light. When I ask people in perversion, when I ask people, all addictions are based on darkness. And so when I ask this person, would you do this thing in front of your parents? Would you do this thing in front of your pastor? Every one of them says no. I said, good. Do you really want victory over this? Well, sure. Okay, good. Next time you have the temptation, call me. What about it being late at night? I don't care. Call me. What about it being... Call me. <coughs> the very act of bringing somebody else into your trial and temptation is the power of bringing light to a dark situation. And the enemy's power is broken. Why won't we do it? Right. Fear of rejection, fear of exposure, and every last person in here tends to cover darkness with more darkness. 
What does it take? It takes humility to bring life to a lot of It takes humility to close the back door and choose to live in the truth when you'd much rather have the comfort of living in the lie. All sin can be broken with the power of light. But it takes true humility to put on light. And so you say, well, I'm going to live righteously. We're going to find out. Because humility requires a lot more than we want to pay. It requires a lot more muscle. There's a third thing that takes place. And he says, now add to your virtue knowledge. Knowledge is the real same thing as meekness. Jesus said, take your yoke on and learn. Know about me. For I am meek. So if you're going to follow me and you're going to pretend to know me, you will be a non-angry person. You see, people who, who my horses that I ride, people expect them to not be bucking and rearing and angry and divisive every time I ask of them. Now, when they're young and developing, they're getting to know me. They're going to have some of those attributes. But when they really know me, as Charlie illustrated yesterday with Silas, when you push on that horse, he never reacts to the spur. You take a young horse, you put a spur to him, he'll bite the spur or he'll buck you off. Now, frankly, I hate to disappoint you, but I've been all around the world, and I've never found a perfect church, and unfortunately, I've never found a perfect pastor other than yours. <laughs> and I've never found a perfect home. And I've never found a perfect set of spurs yet. You can always find an excuse to be angry at an authority, because they all have holes in them. You can always find a legitimate cause to bite the spur. You can always find a reason to be angry with your husband. You can always find a reason to be angry with your wife or your parents. And you know why? God loved He left all persons, all governments extremely flawed. So if you want an excuse, you got it. But to a horse who's broke, when you touch him with the spurs, he never, ever reacts to the spurs. He only puts his heart to do more what you ask him to do. It's never a question of the authority. It's a matter of what God is using the authority for. Oh, goodness. So much anger comes out of my life so quickly. Frankly, I'm more angry than I ever used to be, and I'm a whole lot bit happier about it. God never condemns anger. Anger is an emotion. Same as fear. But the denial of anger causes me to suppress it and be overcome by anger rather than own it. So the problem is this. I need to admit that I'm angry. We can't do it as a Christian. Christians are never angry. You know that? We're frustrated. Because <laughs> that's some other translation. And there's no judgment. Frustration. Lying, cheating people that we are. <laughs> I'm angry! Okay. Now, what do you want to do with that? Anger's an indicator light. Like I, those idiot lights on, on the truck or a car. You know, and my answer is just get a ball peen hammer and knock it out. <laughs> you should see my dash. It's most beautiful. <laughs> and then I go, <laughs> of course, it's at home, isn't it? It's what's under the hood that's the problem. <laughs> and anger's an indicator getting me to look under the hood that my pride. 
my schedule's not going my way, tires are flat, nobody's appreciating who I am and how great I am, and the money's not there, nobody's worshiping me today. I, I don't know what's wrong with this thing. You're an idiot. I'm angry because God is saying, my agenda or your agenda? And I have to humble myself and say, oh God, let me learn of you. Let me follow you. And here's Joshua, a powerful man. But when the Gibeonites came to deceive him, he followed his own leading rather than checking with God. And he, he, he got assigned to a difficult outcome. And these are great men. And if great men like Joshua and Moses and all those have these issues, <laughs> surely I got them. And there's a fourth thing. And it said, now supplying all diligence to add to your faith, virtue, virtue, knowledge, knowledge, self-control. Self-control is not about me improving self. It's not a New Year's resolution, friend. Go, oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to lose so many pounds. Shut up. You failed all the other years. Why would this be special? <laughs> self-control is about putting self under the authority of the Holy Spirit. It's about being under government. But there's a rebellious nature in me that when push comes to shove, when I harness a horse and I push him and I can find him and I move his free lifestyle into defining him right between two legs and seat bones and hands and letting every move mean resist being harnessed. He didn't know how much rebellion was in him until you try to harness it all. You see, the more powerful God wants to make you, the more he limits your life. And unless you find abundance in limitations, you will never find abundance out of limitations. Unless you find freedom inside the pen, you will never find freedom on the other side of the pen. You see, the answer to all of life is more. Less boundaries, more time, more money. No, God, if God wants to add to your life, the first thing he does is subtract. Does he prune that which is very fruit? And then when it bears more fruit, doesn't he prune more, take more away? God, this is not how it's supposed to go. And when he wants to multiply your life, doesn't he divide it first and put you in a place where you can grow? Because his, his, his ways are totally different than ours. So the self-control isn't that I rebel. But I have to admit that I am rebellious before God will do his work. I have to humble myself and say, God, I don't want to serve these people. We said, would you submit to me? Well, you're, yeah, sure, I'll submit to you. Good, then do this first as unto me, to that wife that you're mad at. Why else do you think the scripture says, and husbands, do not be embittered against your wife? Because men don't get it. And men don't understand it. And men are going to be angry with their wife, not because, because they're always evil, because they just don't make any sense. Amen. Right? Of course you don't. And God thought this was going to be fun. I don't get it. It's just crazy. We're totally different. We love each other to death, but we just can't stand each other. Because we don't make any sense to each other. And that's a huge part. You see, God could have left Adam alone. In fact, if I were God, I would have made Adam and just said, let's quit right here. <laughs> not because, no, don't be offended, gal. Because man, Adam was male and female then. He was totally male and female. He was made in the complete image of God. And all male and female comes to God. But God took something from him and gave it to the woman. So that he no longer was male and female. He was male only minus the real important parts. 
Why? Because he already had a trouble talking to himself enough. So if he put her out there and made her extremely attractive, even when he was mad at her, he was still going to look at her. And then he's mad at himself twice, because while he's mad at her, he's still looking at her. Wow! Oh, I hate that one. Oh, wow! rejection and blasphemy and violation of children that have come out of mishandling of these powers that God gave us. So we humble ourselves and we submit first to God. When my wife and I have been so mad at each other tonight, we had sworn a vow we'd never go to angry, bed angry at each other. So there's some really late nights. <laughs> so she'd come around. <laughs> God, help that woman to come around. And you know, sometimes you just couldn't get over. So we both get on our knees. And we tell God how stupid the other person was. <laughs> you know, it sounds pretty trite. <laughs> when you start telling God, he made a mistake in making her who she was and him who he was. And suddenly, the anger and the frustration and the, all that just dissipated. <coughs> now, we may not always been able to solve the issues, but we're able to realize, you know what, he lost us. And because of that, I can love that person too. You see, unless we put God at the center of these things, we begin to get under his government. There isn't a human in the world, listen friends, there's not a human in the world worth submitting to. And yet the power of God always thrives in submission. Look at our evil God. And the more you know about it, the less you will know. This is not a righteous government. There are righteous people. And your husband, you've lived with him long enough to know that he is not totally trustworthy. <laughs> and then it tells men to submit to this woman who doesn't have a brain cell in her head. <laughs> in the man's mind, I'm sorry. I'm probably way out of way out whack. But I'm only here one Sunday. And I'm leaving! <laughs> I'm just going to make things. Like you said, guard the pool, but you never know what coming in. Get in there. Man, he's going to think twice next time. You'll never get another guest speaker. That's just not going to be. I'm sorry, man. But Jesus is worth every ounce of submission you and I can muster. Get your eyes back on Jesus, not on the fallacy of the other person, and serve him or her as if you'd serve the Lord Jesus Christ. That takes a lot of humility. Not when you humble yourself before Jesus. The pride in our life still wants to focus on the right to get even and how and hold on to the residual and punish the other person and make them feel our pain. That's what pride does. I want to make your life as miserable as you've made mine. I want you to feel my loneliness. I want you to feel my ungratefulness. I want you to feel the resentment and the hurt that I feel. We're all. It's sad, but that's really the kind of thing that destroy our marriages, isn't it? But hanging on to those hidden resentments. And then, of course, he says now, supplying all diligence, and he goes to this list here, you have your self-control perseverance. 
horse wants to run back to the barn. Why does the horse want to run back to the barn? Because he wants to quit this stupid ride we're on. I had hay for nothing at the back of the barn. I was on welfare. I never had to work a day in my life. This You ever notice the words, I quit, are never far from your mouth? That's why scripture says, and seeing we have so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every encumbrance. Oh, I got that. The things that are distracting, the things that are temporal, the things that are... And the sin. The sin. Which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with endurance, contrast to the sin. The race is before us. What is the sin? Quit. Quit. Oh, I won't quit. I'll still go to church. But don't expect me to be joyful anymore. As the pastor said something two years ago that bothered me. Bless his heart. If you're in the South, you can say anything you want as long as you say bless her heart. I'm sure is ugly, bless his heart. If you're in the Southwest, you can say anything you want as long as you say God love. He sure is stupid, God love, because nobody else will. Every, Cammie was riding a young horse with a young stud pulled in, and he's a sweet horse. Just like how much gas in his motor. So you get him to canter, and he canters about half the arena and thinks, Are we ready to quit yet? I'm exhausted. I've never had to work like this. I got three grandchildren just like it. Are we done chores yet? We haven't even fed yet. <laughs> quit. I can't think of anything more damning to the Christian community than this nature of quitting. Make a vow to God unto death. That's easy to do when you're 20. Boy, you sure think twice, three times, a million more times about it along that journey to the end, don't you? And we've quit not just on God, we've quit on ourselves, we've quit on our children, we've quit in the middle, and the number one damaging thing. And see, what is quit? I have a right to check out. I have a right to my comforts. I signed up for comfort, you know, and this has already cost me a little sweat and a few hangnails. <laughs> Jesus persevered unto death. Not just death, but death on a cross. When you, any, no man who's ever sweat drops of blood has ever lived but a short time after that, he sweat drops of blood in the garden of Gethsemane. And he wasn't asking to be off the cross when he said, Lord, not my will, but your will. He said, Lord, don't let me die in Gethsemane. Now, if you understood what that man went through as a man, when you look in the caves of Caiaphas beneath his house, the first, first time that they ever had torture cells in Caiaphas' house as a political agent, much like the Pope of today. There's evidence of sweat and blood on the rocks where his body would have been against facing the east through the night in a manure pit deep in the cave beneath Caiaphas' house after the tribunal and the accusation of mockery. And then that was after Gethsemane where he sweat drops of blood in the greatest the disciples, they said they weren't just going to sleep, friends. They weren't just tired. They did not want to know what was on his heart. 
They didn't want to share in his sufferings. Just let me sleep. I don't want to know. I don't want to know that much about Jesus. I don't want to share in his pain. Just let me go to church and be a nice Christian and not. You see, all of us say, I don't want to be like Jesus. You're liars. Filthy liars. <laughs> Nobody wants to be like Jesus. He's more king. He's more God. He's more man than any of us ever have a passion to be. Suffer more than any of us ever want to taste. All of us want enough of Jesus to get by and look good. And so what does he say? I'm going to let you drink that cup. I'm going to let you share my sufferings. <clears throat> Why? Because you want my life to be full of agony? No. The purpose of sufferings are not sufferings, friends. The purpose of sufferings are fellowship. And he's going to let you experience a little bit of his distaste until you turn your eyes fully upon him and rest and rejoice in who he is and none of this other stuff even as the pain of suffering goes away when you've chosen that fellowship with him in Gethsemane. The purpose of all suffering, like he has put the horses, to drive you to intimacy with God. Free you of your burdens. But in that sweating time, in that lonely time, there's so much quit in all of this. So much quit in all of this. And you find it in young horses that are just, that, and, and your whole goal and training is to get them to persevere in doing good. And God tells us over again, you should bring forth your fruit with perseverance. The number one theme of the church of the last days for the Christians is perseverance. But hang tight. I know you're in Satan's throne. I know where you are. Hang tight. Your reward is yet coming. Hang tight. Hang tight. That's not an issue of, of assertiveness. That's an issue of great, deep humility of clinging to him until, until he says we're through. <laughs> It's pride that gets off that bracket. And then add to your perseverance godliness. What's the opposite of godliness? Excuses. Well, I'm only human. I can't do everything. Why do I get blamed for everything? Remember this, friends, and especially you men. The purpose of all authority is to accept the blame and the anger of those on you. I didn't sign up for this. If I had known it, I really wouldn't have signed up for it. Does not Job say, as anger, as sparks rise upward in fire, so does the anger of man. Do we not blame somebody over us for all the inconveniences of our life? Every man of his household has on his back a target that says, anger comes to me. Well, that's ridiculous. No, it isn't. As men are meant to process that anger and give it all to God. It's like the dishcloth in a, in a home. The dishcloth cleans up the window. When the wife's home, we clean up the bread and the orange <laughs> And the wife's not there, we clean up the dog, we clean up the kids' faces, we clean up the dog, fill skulls on the floor. And when the wife comes home on Monday and smells that dish rag, oh! <laughs> Why? Because the dish rag had a confused identity. The dish rag thought it was God, like men do. Because they're made in that image. And they think we're to fix everything and transform everything. But the dish rag only gets accumulated by defilement and gets stinky and angry and bitter and short-tempered and impatient. And it had an infused identity. The purpose of the dish rag 
was to transport the spills from the countertop to the sink to have them freshly washed and get ready for one those. Men are transporters. We're not yet gods. We're not yet fixers. We're made in the image. We will be like God. But today we have a problem. And that's why the anger comes to surface. Men have a problem. Who's in charge here? Me or God? I think I am. You were made that way. But God said, not yet. Honey, humility first in this generation, in this season. You see, when we make excuses, it's because of pride. Every man needs to learn to say to himself, it's right that you should expect this of me. I am a child of God. I've given everything I need for life and for godliness. I humble myself and look to you, O God, to be the source of the man that I am not. And in that, he leads his entire family to wholeness and helpless. And add to your godliness, instead of making excuses, it's right that you should expect this in me. Oh, God, it's more than I can bear. Yes, it is. It's more than I can. Yes, it is. Let me take your emotions and your confusion and your headship and let me cause your rest in me. Add your godliness, brotherly kindness. Sometimes after you've arrived, you want to be indifferent to people that are needy and always taking and always begging and never fixed and always interrupting you. <coughs> and like my horse yesterday, after it's been stepped on and bit on a certain time, don't, don't get, a, get a chance to just either get rid of this jerk or kick him once or bite him once. No. <coughs> the day you die, you're called to a higher level of service. You know Israel was called to do one thing, to humble themselves by facing seven giants greater and mightier than them to own this vessel. Humility is the, listen friends, the only reason I preach this message again and again, because God says he's opposed to the proud but gives all grace. Grace is everything you need. All grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Now the devil is there. He's right, right in the next verse. He's right there looking. Proud, for somebody occupies their life in pride. When you choose to live your life in pride, you know God says? I'm going to turn you over to the specialist in pride, Satan. He's allowed to torment your soul until you humble yourself and come back into my fellowship. But I'm going to give you everything you've ever longed for and everything I've ever designed you to be in grace. Key to grace is you will never see grace. Does not Galatians says, and seeing the grace of God in their life, the only way they saw grace is because Paul humbled himself and they saw the attributes of grace manifest in his life and they saw the power of God. God do marvelous things that only God can do because Paul walked in dependence. When Israel walked in dependence, they overcame all the, all the enemies of the land. And when they refused to do that and they started making excuses for the giants in the highland and for the Philistines, they, they quit defeating the enemy. The moment you and I walk in pride is the moment Satan earns another right to our life. It is the most powerful resource. It's the richest thing any person can own in the face of it because Satan doesn't have a clue how to work with a truly humble person. The problem is you and I think Humility is, well, I can't do this and such, and I shouldn't volunteer that, and I won't speak. I don't suck it off. <laughs> suck it off. Humility has nothing to do with that. Humility requires great strength, great resolve, great perseverance, a lot of sweat. 
It involves a lot of truth, a lot of listening to, to corrections. It involves a lot of owning of stuff that we don't want to own. Now, if you want to see real power, here are seven attributes of a horse who walks in humility when he thinks more about the master's will than his own will. Grass, the other horses, what everybody else doing. And then you watch the horse totally focus <coughs> on the will of his master. It's an attractive thing. When you get the horse, when he listens to every step of the rider's influence with the seat muscles, the legs, the reins, he listens dependently every step upon his master. See, the problem is dependence, isn't it? I don't want to be that dependent on anybody, including God. <coughs> step by step, dependency. It's not too hard for any person, no matter what their intellect, no matter what their financial accomplishment, no matter what their skill level is, or their aptitudes. Just step by step. You will never be in God's will tomorrow if you're not willing to walk with Him today. Third thing. When the horse drops his head, he doesn't have to have his head up. He doesn't need to know what's in control. And every time he's tempted to raise his little head and carry the burden heavy on his back, he needs to drop the head and give the burden to God and say, God, I give you headship. You are the head of my life. You're the glory of my life. You're the hope of my life. You're the everything of my life. I give you headship. He will always take you in places where you're not in control. Why? He doesn't want yesterday's vacation Bible school Jesus to be the only Jesus you know. So many of you have little Jesuses. Why? How does God expand your Jesus? By expanding your opposition. Every time a horse does something right, we create a greater opposition to build his faith. And if yesterday's God is big enough for tomorrow's problems, you've got the wrong God. Why? He's got to always increase the opposition. The only way you build muscle in this world is by opposition and repetition. Stink. That's not a good formula. <laughs> is that not true? Is that not the land we live in? And that's the way our faith muscles grow the same. Opposition and repetition. This is not a good morning, folks. <laughs> the fourth thing. How do you know a horse is humble? When he moves his feet and not his mouth. I never get on a horse that doesn't move his feet right. The Christians have learned to move their mouth instead of their feet. They've learned to talk rather than get their wallet out. They've learned to say, bless you. Brother. And, and Facebook is so nice. You can bless so many people without doing a thing. You can pass so many things around. All those things you keep passing around each other and never have to do anything after. Just push a little button. Bless your pointed head. <laughs> Humility is when a horse worships the trainer. How does a horse worship the trainer? Mm -hmm. There's only two things that allow that horse to worship the trainer. He moves his feet with the right spirit. Unless you worship me in spirit and in deed, action and attitude, you don't worship. You ever notice that the more pacifistic, the more obese the church has become, the less they move. The louder we worship, the less the action. Why? It's a cover-up. You must move feet 
with the right attitude. Isn't that what we want of our children? When we ask them to, we want them to do the action with the right spirit. If they don't do the right spirit, we're, we're still a battle with them. If they have a sweet little spirit but they don't do anything, don't even feed them. <laughs> Why? Because hello, we're supposed to do something useful here in life. And that means to move with songs. You see, Romans says it this way. Although they knew him as God, they did not honor him as God. They didn't move. And they did not give thanks. There was no attitude of softness. And he calls them a reprobate people. They have separated theology from life. So this horse humbles himself by moving his feet softly. He humbles himself by taking full responsibility for his person. When we get a horse that's really well broke, we run him down an arena and we don't touch him. You set him in a course and you do not touch him. You set him on a circle, you do not touch him. Because when he knows what you're to do, you make him do that and take full responsibility for himself. And if the horse deviates, we don't hold him. We correct him, we get after him, and we put him right back on. Take full responsibility for carrying it out. He never touched the rain. You never speed him up. Why? Because when he knows what's right to do, he better do it. He better occupy. He better own himself until I change directions. Wow. This humility stuff came in that, didn't it? <laughs> we know that a horse humbles himself when he is free of all braces. What's braces? Braces are what I call bristle spots in marriages. Crystal spots are when you're both chewing on something and either getting anything out of it. Both you chewing on each other like a piece of meat that has nothing in it and you're both gnawing at it. Terrible. Okay. A brace is when a horse resists the bit. When he drops the shoulder. When he's always making defensive postures. Oh, man. That gets into our relationship so quick. The guardedness, the cynicism, the sarcasm, the withdrawal, the punishment, the rationalization. To remind each other of our past. Oh man, that's terrible, isn't it? When you get on any horse and you watch those braces come up, you realize this horse is guarding himself and fortunate. He's free of all braces. No guardedness, no defensiveness, no sarcasm, no get evens, no keeping himself from expecting to give 100 percent He loves. You will never love without a full cup of humility. Why? Because the result is this horse is fully alive. Every time you touch him, he hears. He's fully yielded. Every time you put pressure, he moves. And he's fully honest. To humble yourself means to be fully alive. Don't bury your garbage. Transform it. Mm -hmm. Don't deny your past. Transform it. Don't hide your heart. Give it all away. Fully yielded. Oh my goodness, that's that's a lot. Mm -hmm. And fully harnessed to do the will of God. Everything is full. 100 percent Lord, there's not one of us here that would dare stand and say, I have this master. Mm -hmm. It's a whole lot easier to preach than live. 
It's a whole lot easier to tell somebody else than it is to do it again today. And yet the truth of it is the highest attainment, the highest accomplishment of any day of our life is to humble ourselves again. We're about to take communion, Father. Probably a good place to start would be to humble ourselves, admit that we have some braces, or we have some resistance, or some excuses, or we have some vengeance, or some quitting in our life, and we need to own that. We need to give it to you this morning. And you wash our souls and draw us near and cleanse us from every darkness and every evil work.